0: In my life in science as a theoretical physicist, I've worked on several different problems, but primarily on quantum gravity, the problem of how to unify or bring together quantum theory and quantum physics with space and time and gravity and relativity. But I've also given a substantial amount of time to the problems and the foundations of quantum mechanics, to making sense of quantum mechanics and in the last five or so years my work on these two different problems has converged and now everything that I'm working on and all the progress that I'm making is on a theory that attacks and in my opinion resolves both the problems of quantum gravity and quantum spacetime and the problem of making sense of quantum mechanics. Now, there are two kinds of projects or two kinds of ways that people study the measurement problem and the other problems in the foundations of quantum theory. There are a lot of people who take quantum mechanics as given, that is, as developed and put in final form in the late 1920s by Heisenberg and his collaborators. they note that we're uncomfortable with it, that that theory has certain puzzles, has behavior which is not very intuitive, and they presume the problem is us and our understanding and search for different ways to express the physics of that theory or the principles of that theory without challenging or changing that theory. And that's most of the work in what's called Quantum Foundations. Then there's a small number, and I'm one of them, that take the problems in quantum mechanics as evidence that the theory is wrong, or at least incomplete. And this was Einstein's view, and de Broglie's view, and Schrodinger's view, and many others. Among contemporaries, it's Roger Penrose's view. And we hold that the reason why the theory is hard to understand and has puzzles is because it's the wrong theory and we look for a completion of the theory and what we mean by that is a theory that would do something that quantum mechanics does not do which is give a complete description and explanation for what happens in each and every individual process so that's the that's what i've been trying to do and since i was in graduate school every few years i write a paper two papers about that now there is a key idea that underlies my work in that area and that's that the problem of what's called non-locality isn't a very important hint non-locality is the phenomenon also sometimes called entanglement that if you have two quantum systems and they interact and then separate they share properties in that measurements with one of those particles even if they're very far away from each other affects what's measurable in this in the other particle and that's a statement of what's sometimes called bell's theorem and it's been put in a framework or in a form where it can be tested experimentally and the experiments clearly show that the assumption that the two particles are independent because they're far away is wrong and if you want a complete description and not a statistical description in terms of probabilities of the results of experiments on these kind of systems you have to put in explicit interactions and communication between them. And I think that's right. That's what would be called a non-local theory and traditionally we call it a non-local hidden variable theory. And there are a number of these. Louis de Broglie invented the first. It's called pilot wave theory. It was laughed out of town by, by, this was the late 1920s, and it was criticized, and there were theorems that showed that it was impossible in the early 30s, and it was basically dropped by de Broglie and everybody else, and then rediscovered by David Bohm. So that's the first non-local hidden variable theory we have, and there are others. I went about trying to find a, a good, so I like the de Broglie-Bohm pilot wave theory as an example, which shows that that route is possible. But I don't believe the assumptions of that theory. And I don't think that that's a route to a deeper understanding of nature. So we won't talk about it. Um, the, the theory that I've been looking for would, as I said, take advantage of the fact that the notion of locality and non-locality was key to understanding quantum mechanics, and try to understand that with the lens of the unification of quantum physics with space and time, which is quantum gravity. Now, in both approaches, there's a principle. And the principle is the idea of relational physics, that the degrees of freedom, the properties of whatever it is that's dynamical that you're studying, arises from relationships, dynamical relationships with other degrees of freedom. In other words, you don't have absolute space, you don't have particles which occupy points or follow paths or trajectories in absolute space you have many particles which, between them, you can define relative motion. And this was a principle that was introduced by Leibniz and developed by Mach, and was a very important inspiration for Einstein in general relativity. And so I have tried to use that principle in making non-local hidden variable theories. And through the commonality of having relational descriptions in quantum theories of gravity and in hidden variable theories or completions of quantum mechanics, I'm able to invent theories that address both problems, quantum mechanics and quantum gravity. And particularly the last eight years or so, there's a version of these theories which is developing which I'm very excited about. So I'd like to talk about that. The the theory that I'd like to talk about is an approach to both quantum gravity and quantum foundations that we invented and developed with Marina Cortez, called energetic causal sets. And this is a theory which is sometimes called a realist theory. A realist theory is an approach to quantum mechanics which describes what's there and it has nothing to do with measurement or what we think or our consciousness or our knowledge. It is just a description of nature as it is. And a realist theory has not observables as quantum people talk about it, which may or may not have definite values but what John Bell called beables. A beable is something which has always a definite value. And the idea is to reduce and get rid of the confusing use of observables, which are put forward in a very non-realist or operational point of view, and replace them with talks about beables. And when you're talking about beables, you're talking about the ontology, what the theory says is fundamental and real. So let me tell you what is fundamental and real in this theory. First of all, events. Events are things that happen. And events create other events. In this theory, there. are are always new events being made. And an event has parents, if you will, which give rise to that event. So the parents might shoot out an electron each and the electrons combine, that's the event. And the parents are the, uh, the two atoms that shot out that, uh, those two electrons. And we have by that a causal relationship. In terms of causation, the intersection of the two electrons is caused by the atoms which emitted the two electrons. So we have causal relations, and these causal relations are real. The events are real, and the process that builds the new events or creates the new events continually from the old events is real. And the causal relations are real. Space and time, in the sense of space-time, in the sense of a pre-existing geometry with c- points and coordinates, is not real, is not fundamental, and is not part of this description something else that is real and fundamental is energy and momentum. And that's why we call these energetic causal sets, so that these causal relations carry energy and momentum, and the events inherit that energy and momentum, and then split it up and send it off. So, what's emergent What is not fundamental but emerges at a higher level, the way that temperature and pressure emerge, is space-time. The idea of elementary particles propagating classically and the idea of the quantum state and the quantum description are all emergent from this fundamental ontology. And there's a lot I could say, but that would take us a long time. And there are are many results that we've achieved about these theories. But I want to talk about one aspect of it. And this is the following. And I've been thinking about how to implement the, the idea which I'm about to describe for all my career, and I finally was able to do it. And it's the following idea. An event has a view of the world. And let me tell you what I mean by a view. A view is the information about how it fits into the rest of the world that that event has. That includes who are its parents, and what was the energy and momentum that was propagated to it. So my view of the world is I look out and light comes up from the past and I see a pattern of colors which comes from photons of different energies striking my eye. And that's my view. It's a a property of a moment. And that contains all that I as an event know about how I fit to the rest of the world. Now, if you know the things that I just said were real, the events, the causal relations, the distribution of energy and momentum flowing, I can tell you what the view of each event is, but I can also flip it around. There's a dual description in which I just say what the views are. And that's the, that's the whole description. So I just say, there's a view, and that view is, and here's a kind of picture. What it sees is this, you see the sky, a two-dimensional sphere around you, which is the sky. And here are some colors, which are photons coming in of different energies. And that's the view. And I can hypothesize that all that exists in the world is views and a process which continually makes new views out of old views. So that's what I call the causal theory of views. And that was the culmination of this this work. So what a universe is, what the universe then is, and I take this very seriously, that this is not just my talk, there's mathematics for this and it's well worked out and we've develop various consequences of it. But what the universe is is a collection of partial views because each of these is just part of the universe, of itself. And that's all the universe is in this story. And And in addition, there's no uncertainty principle. See, the uncertainty principle which says that you can't have definite values involves the momentum and the the position, which you can't both measure at the same time. But there's no positions, there's no space. There's just energy and momentum and relations by which views create and give rise to new views, which create and give rise to new views. So what are we able to show from this? We can recreate or show that space-time emerges in a way in which you give an approximate description of all these causal relations between the views. And the views are represented in the space-time by the light cone that is an event and the light cone of photons going up to it. And this, to me, is, is very important because there are a number of different approaches that start off saying that space and time are discrete, and they can't really recover the world of space-time as it is. And this was one of our first important results. And then when space emerges, at the level of description where space emerges, you also get quantum physics. That is, coordinates in that space measuring those interferes with measuring those momenta and so quantum mechanics emerges and there's an interesting fact about that which which was uh, one of the most exciting moments i've had in all my working on research um normally physics describe systems from the outside and when we talk about interactions or forces we talk about locality. Locality means that things interact with other things in the same place. Or there's a force like gravity that falls off like the square of the distance. So it depends on the notion of distance. But we have no space in this, fun, in this fundamental theory. So, how can we formulate dynamics? And the way we can formulate dynamics is that we can measure the difference between the views. We can pick two events and say how different or how similar are your views of the rest of the world. And we can define an energy of the whole system, a kind of potential energy of the system, which is a function only of the differences of the views. So a long time ago, in the late 80s, Julian Barber and I worked together and we invented a measure of the differences of the views in such a system, which we called the variety. And the variety measures the total amount of differentiation or indeed variety in a system of relations. You look at all the pairs of views and measure how different they are, and then you add that up over all the pairs. So I put this into the theory in order to give some dynamics and give some interactions. And lo and behold, when I get out, when I make the right approximations, is something which is the key ingredient of the de Broglie-Bohm hidden variable theory. So I recovered the de Broglie-Bohm hidden variable theory from this theory, and I would have to talk technically to explain how that is, but that f- f- force of the variety is exactly the right interaction to put into a system of views to when you specialize the views to be views of some particles moving slowly, non-relativistically becomes the de Broglie-Bohm theory, which is equivalent to quantum mechanics. So that's what I mean when I say that quantum mechanics is recovered. There's a version of this theory that we developed with Wolfgang Weiland, which is a spin-foam theory, a spin-foam theory is a version of loop quantum gravity that we developed with Carlo Rovelli and Abhay Ashtakar. So we make contact with that world and we can discuss s- loop quantum gravity in a way that has events and causal relations. And that is helpful and is part of the, the, everything that's coming together in the theory. Good, so now that I've laid out some of the aspects of energetic causal sets and the causal theory of views, let me situate them with respect to research in quantum gravity. So presently, we have six or eight approaches to quantum gravity that get part way there. The two that are much, most developed by quite a bit are string theory and loop quantum gravity. I am very, I was one of the inventors of loop quantum gravity. I'm impressed by it, I care about it, but there are problems that it doesn't solve. There are places, in my view, that we've been stuck and have been stuck for a while. And I think the same thing is true about string theory. I'm excited about string theory, but as a fundamental theory, it it has reached roadblocks, reached stumbling points, and we haven't figured out how to get around them. Um, So this is an approach which, as I said, incorporates or can incorporate some elements of loop quantum gravity and in a way that would be too complicated to explain, but in any case, we haven't worked out very much. It could make contact with string theory, maybe. Um, But it's new and it certainly doesn't have the mass amount of work and results and people involved that these two theories have had. It's at the beginning. There is also four or five small programs in quantum gravity, causal sets itself without the energetics, causal dynamical triangulations, you see the word causal comes up a lot, um, and uh, several others, asymptotic safety, several others that I could name, which all have the status that there are some results which are very tantalizing and there are some problems that don't go away so we're trying to incorporate elements of previous ideas but it's a different start it's a fresh start it's what i think we should be doing i think rather than sitting on our little hills that we've built up and throwing stones at each other if i can make a metaphor um, we should all be meeting down in the valley and trying to start afresh and this is an attempt to do that for me that meant starting with principles, and the principles I mentioned about relational theories and wanting a realist theory of quantum mechanics are for me fundamental principles and they motivate the work to try to make a fresh start. Um, There are a few people who are contributing to this, but not many. It's, It's at the beginning. It's small. I feel incredibly excited about this because of the way it brings together the different strands of my work the last 30 something years and other things that I didn't mention but are part of this. This work builds on all the thinking and work I did arguing for the fundamental nature of time and it really brought my work on that question on time together with Marina Cortez's work and thinking about the importance of irreversibility, the fact that fundamentally the universe is irreversible. It brings together my interest in the idea that the laws of nature evolve, which is led to the idea of the landscape of theories and to my idea of cosmological natural selection as a way to explain the choice of the laws, the values of the different coupling constants and other parameters in the standard model of physics. The idea that string theory has a problem and that there are a large number of versions of string theory and they all lead to different predictions for the dimensionality of space and the elementary particles wasn't new in 2003. It was clear to a number of people already by 1987, 1988, among them was Andrew Strominger, Andy Strominger, who's a good friend of mine, who's now a professor at Harvard. And he, so at first there were, te, there were four different string theories. Then there were these Kalabi-Yau compactifications in 1986, of which there were hundreds of thousands. Compactifications refers to shrinking down and folding up the six extra dimensions. So, they're much smaller than the three dimensions of space that we observe. Um, Andy d- discovered in 1987 that there were a vast, probably uncountable, number of versions of string theory. So, it was much worse than the hundreds of thousands, even from Kalabi Yau compactifications. And he published this in a theory called Torsion in String Theory. And he said in that paper, and we were friends, and he came to me with this problem. He was very upset about this, that there are so many versions of string theory, we won't be able to explain anything, because whatever the experimentalists see, we will have a version of string theory which agrees with that. And I took that worry and was reading at that time, just recreationally, Lynn Margulis, Dawkins, Steve Gould, and all that literature. And I set myself the question, I said, here in biology, we have a process, which is natural selection, which chooses parameters, namely the genes, in a way that leads to a biosphere, which has a a lot of structure and complexity. And here we have the universe evolving, which somehow chooses laws and parameters of laws in a way that leads to a universe which is full of complexity and life. And can I take the methods and the ideas from biology, from population biology and evolutionary theory, and apply them to physics? So the first idea in biology, they talk about the landscape it's the it's an enormous space of all the possible gene sequences that could be the dna of a species and they have a function which is the fitness of a being with those genes and they argue that a population will tend to cluster at the top of hills of that function where there's the most fitness and i took all of that with the language and found a scenario and the details of the scenario don't matter, but this was a story about black holes giving rise to new universes. And that process caused the, the, the parameters in the physical theories to change slightly so that you accumulated fitness. And I published this paper in 1992, and this was the first book I wrote, Life of a Cosmos. Life of the Cosmos. And then, what happened in 2003 is that a group at Stanford discovered a way to solve another problem for string theory in a way that produced a description of a landscape of a vast number of string theories. Rather than using the analogy to natural selection, He used the idea of the Anthropic Principle, which people like Martin Rees and colleagues had developed as an explanation for the parameters of cosmology and physics. Well, I had the privilege of being part of the invention of quantum gravity. Mm -hmm. And each of us, Abhay Ashtekar, Karl Rovelli and myself, put in an essential element And I'm very proud of that, whether that theory is right or not. That did take off and became something that hundreds of people work on and there are conferences and you can measure progress. And I'm proud of that. Um, I am not sure it's right. And I think that Carlo and Abai would say the same thing. I've strayed more outside of the community of that. There's a kind of story and it's a personal story because uh, Carlo and Abai and other people are good friends and they have chosen to develop and emphasize developing this one theory and I have preferred to continue to invent. I think what I'm good at is initiating and inventing and I'm not good at leading a large group of people and trying to get them to march in the same direction, but they do that well. When, when I was invited to be one of the first founding scientists to start Perimeter Institute, the founding donor, Mike Lazaridis, and the first director, the founding director, Howard Burton, explained to me the principles that this idea was based on. This institute was to be different and better and one of them was that we were going to discourage silos. You couldn't come and just work on one thing. And there was the principle of everybody's better off with some opposition. So if we're going to have people working on quantum gravity, we're going to get loop quantum gravity people and string people and twister people. and. everybody's going to be uncomfortable. There's going to be no defaults, no entitlements. And we've kept to that principle. So we have people studying quantum gravity from a variety of different points of view. And this gives our research center and our research area a different flavor from others where if you join that research group, you follow the direction of the leader of the research group. And they have done very well, but we have also done well. And one way to measure how well we've done is that in the area of quantum gravity, which is not a big area, but it's grown as a result of our work. um, Something like half of the faculty who were hired into faculty positions in the field the last 19 years since we started are our postdocs. So we've been like a school and indeed the central school. And we have communicated this ethic of tolerance and disagreement. And I think it's been a good thing let's put on the table the question that I and other people are trying to address when we talk about consciousness or qualia as it's sometimes called. And that's the following, and this is what David Chalmers calls the hard question. And it's been there since Galileo, who spoke about it. Leibniz spoke about it. And it's the following. If you describe your brain, if I describe your brain, which I can measure, and I can, through various techniques, track what's going on. Let's say I could completely describe what's going on in your neurons and all the chemicals and fields. I would not have any reason to deduce that you have sensations and have the I- experience, which is only open to you, of seeing colors and hearing sounds, and thinking thoughts and feeling emotions and pains and etc. It's what Leibniz said: is that it's if the brain were a mill, you could go inside the mill and see all the parts working. You would never deduce that the brain was associated with a mind that had an experience that could say, I experience, I see a color. There is an explanatory gap. One, There are are stories that people tell. So there's Mary, the colorblind neuroscientist. And Mary is colorblind, as the title says. And she is the world's greatest neuroscientist, and this is 500 years in the future. And she knows everything there is to know about how the brain processes vision and color vision. And she, one day, somebody invents an operation which can give her back the colors in sight. And she undergoes the operation. She wakes up the next day. She takes off her bandages. She goes outside and she looks up at the sky and she says, I'm the world's greatest neuroscientist. I knew everything about color vision. But until now, I didn't know what the color blue was like, what it was like to have the sensation of the color blue. Now." The philosopher who invented that argument asks us, is Mary right? Is there something that she now knows that she didn't know before? And if you think the answer is yes, then that's the question that is to be addressed. People who don't think there is a question deny that she actually knows something that she didn't know before. And that's one of the different ways that people talk about the question. Another way is the conceivability of zombies argument. Given everything we know about science, it's perfectly possible that there are human beings who don't have any inner experiences. Who, because physics and biology and chemistry explain everything that happens in their brain, explain what they hear, what they see, what they think, what they decide to do. And it might be, I know that I have these inner experiences. I look around, I see the colors. But it might be that I'm the only one or my best friend is a zombie and doesn't have any experience going on. And the fact that this is conceivable, David Chalmers argues, means that there's a gap in our knowledge. Because if we understood what Mary knows now, we would realize that zombies were impossible. That part of being a human being is to have these inner inner experiences. Now, probably the sensible view and my view for most of my life has been, this is an interesting problem. It's a scientific problem. I hope someday in the progress of science it's addressed, but it's too hard to work on. There was only one view that, of the many views that are offered that seemed to make sense to me, which was invented by Bertrand Russell. And this is called Russellian neutral monism, and it was endorsed by Eddington and a number of other people at the time. And that's roughly that when we describe atoms and elementary particles and forces, we're describing, especially in a relational universe, how things appear to evolve from the point of view of things outside them. But atoms and electric fields and whatever might have some inner essence. There might be something about what it's like. To be an atom or a p- molecule or a cell or a bat. And this is another aspect of being material. So this is not against materialism, this is not against physicalism. This is taking, this is saying there's another aspect and we only know about it because we experience directly the the chemical and electrical events in our brains. So that has seemed to me a reasonable point of view. I read about in college, it seemed to me as far as you could go. And up until very recently, that was my view. But to leave you with something tantalizing Recently, I see a way to address some aspects of that question within the physics that I've been developing. Let me put this in context. There is a view that the world is fundamentally mathematical, which I think means that there is some mathematical object, a solution of equations, some equations, or a system of equations, which corresponds to the world in the sense that every property that's true about the world is a theorem that you can prove about this mathematical object. I don't think that's true. And I think there are a very few things that are properties of the world that are not properties of any mathematical object. And one of them is that it's always some time There's the present moment in nature. Whereas all the truths of mathematical objects are timeless. They're logical implications. And logical implications can model causal relations, but they're not the same. Another one is the sensations of qualia, what it's like to see red and blue and so forth. So I think mathematics will play a role. I think that science will be able to incorporate some hypotheses and testable hypotheses about colors and sounds and sensations. And they will become part of the mathematical models that we make of the world. But I also think that we'll never get back that, to me, very romantic but wrong idea that our job as theoretical physicists is to find an equation which represents all of reality.